Hello, Lisa. Hello, Diana. Welcome to Should We, a podcast with potential. Yes, and we are now in a bonus episode. I guess you could call it episode 13. Mm-hmm, Baker's Dozen. Exactly. Um, uh, it's a surprise to us and perhaps to our listeners because we said we were done with episode with season one. Um, but I've been really wanting to record with you. Me too. I feel all of this pent up news and all these stories and I keep finding weird ways to communicate with you that are as <laughs> close to a podcast as possible without actually being a podcast. So we decided yeah. to just let it let it go. Yeah, we have a lot to say. So um we're we're speaking up. Mm-hmm. We're coming back to you with just a little bit extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first question on our list today is called "Should We Keep Going?" <laughs> and it's about the Kickstarter we're running. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we're we're a little ways in. We're about three weeks into a four-week Kickstarter. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I've been trying not to look too closely at the days because they go by really fast. And as each one passes, I'm getting so nervous. Yeah, me too. I mean, I know from studying a lot of Kickstarter projects, like as you know, I worked there for a summer. So I studied a lot of Kickstarter projects. I know that um, you know mid-campaign lull is totally normal um, and that most of the backing happens at the beginning and the end. But... I just feel really helpless trying to figure out how to make sure that I'm doing whatever I need to in the middle yeah. to make the end go as well as possible. Right. I mean, it's understandable that there's a lull for our potential backers, that they're waiting for the right moment. But it's very uncomfortable for us to be in the lull. I don't want to be in a lull. I want to be in the middle of the action. That's right. And, you know, we uh, set a goal of $10,000 as elaborately discussed in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And this was a big step up from, for us from our original imagining of a $1,000 goal. So we've like blown past the $1,000 goal. Super happy we didn't stop there. Right, right. So I'm, I want to ask you, do you regret making a $10,000 goal? Because we're not, like, we're not there you know and it's nerve-wracking to think about whether we're gonna get there or not how do you feel about that I mean no I don't regret it because 10,000 is what a season costs you know like I there's no way to have said let's set a goal that's only exactly as much as the willingness to pay is because we had no idea what that was so the whole idea of a Kickstarter is like you just set the goal at what the thing you're doing costs and then you find out how close you can get to that right so I mean a season we calculated it pretty thoroughly and it cost ten thousand dollars so I'm really happy and excited to have the information that multiple thousands of dollars of support exists out there like I had no idea how much support there would be so that's really exciting to see but now I just feel this intense desire to somehow close the gap between what's happened so far and where we want to get to because at this point I want it so badly you know I haven't been disillusioned I just am very bewildered about how to close the Mm -hmm. gap between Mm -hmm. the 
present and the future I want. Right. Um, so there are a couple things that we have done to try and close that gap. Mm-hmm. And can we talk about yes. them? Okay, so... Wait, first, I want to know whether you regret setting the goal at $10,000. No. No, I don't <laughs> regret it. I don't regret it at all. I just only like winning. <laughs> I only like achieving my goals. So we have to get there. I'm not giving up at all. I'm mm-hmm. so far from giving up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> we both like winning. Yeah. Okay, and so let's talk a little bit about how we're trying to win. So one of the things we've done is we've added um, reward levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and can I tell you which one's my favorite? Yes. So, so my favorite one is the book prescription one. We added that after the fact, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we started with a compact set of tiers, mainly in powers of 10. Yeah. So we had a $10 tier, we had a $100 tier, we had a $1,000 tier, we had a $10,000 tier, and then we had like one more. Right. Um, and the $100 tier was a friendship bracelet tier. Oh man, those went so fast. They went so fast. They were like the most popular reward. Like hotcakes they went. Yeah, so we set a limit of 10 on those and it was like amazing to see them go. And the best thing was, it was really friends who backed them, which was amazing. Like I had no idea what would happen and I would have been happy to meet new friends who would back it that way. But it was actually really cool to see familiar names roll through pledging for friendship bracelets but then that rolled that ran out so we were like okay we need a new tier at that level yeah, yeah and so and so book prescriptions um and I am so excited about writing those book prescriptions creating them for people and hearing about like you know their ailments or whatever it is they need a book prescription for um and do we have any of those left yeah, we have some of those left. Yeah, very few though. Mm-hmm. Those are running out fast too. Yeah, I know. I mean, and what was surprising about that is that it was like the opposite of the friendship bracelet one. Like a few people that I haven't ever met and would now like to, obviously, but like haven't ever met, pledged for book prescriptions, which was so cool. Yeah, yeah. And also, I kind of want one. Yeah. Like I might ask you if, <laughs> if I could have one like later on. Like yeah. what book prescription would you write for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would love to write that. Maybe we'll trade them. Maybe that'll yeah. be our, our next holiday present to each other. Oh, that sounds great. Um, there's another pledge level that we have added, but we didn't. We haven't really said anything about it yet, and I don't think anyone has done it. No. Okay, so this one is Should We Be Moody? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you pledge at this level... You can give us a wardrobe or decor conundrum, and we'll make a mood board for you. And I so want to do this. I know, me too. Somebody please (laughs) give me your problems so I can make you a Pinterest board. It's my dream come true. You know how obsessed I am with Pinterest. Yeah, I mean, occasionally I have mentioned a problem to you, and you're like, don't even worry about it. Like, I can solve this really quickly. I'll make you a board. And, like, doing it will bring me so much joy. Somebody, 
please let me do this for you. Yeah, I mean, we sat there, and how we came up with these rewards was we just thought about activities we enjoy. Especially on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Like, mostly, how can we still just sit on the couch together Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe type away at our computers and laugh quietly under our breath (laughs) and ultimately give something to someone else that they will enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of running out of my own problems, to be honest. Like, (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, you've seen, we're in my apartment right now. To set the scene, the apartment is no longer box world. The gurgling you hear in the background is the washing machine slash dryer, which in a very European way um, does both, but it takes about 10 hours for the entire cycle to complete. (laughs) I've actually never successfully timed it because it just takes, in my estimation, a quote entire day. So I just try to set it going on weekends or before I go to work and then I never am there when it finishes. Anyway, and then... um, Somehow your laundry problems just follow you wherever (laughs) you go. I know. Sometime we'll talk about the disaster of the laundry machine in Germany. Yeah, it smelled like cheese. It smelled like cheese, but only because I didn't understand that I had to empty a compartment that was never explained to me. It was so complicated and all the words were in German. Yeah. And we tried to use a translation app, which didn't do anything. It didn't work at all. I had to find the English version of the manual online, which was its own conundrum. So anyway, we're in this apartment, and um, I've done such a good job of, with my partner Eric, identifying the, the ideal furniture solution for every challenge. And the apartment, to begin with, is so small that we essentially have no floor space left. Like, we're about, all of it is spoken for. So I'm done. I'm done with the apartment. There's You're nothing done. more I can do. And I love how you've optimized for lying down. Yeah. <laughs> the entire <laughs> apartment is just like surface on surface on surface designed for horizontal leisure. Yeah, yeah. I love that perfect place to make a friendship bracelet <laughs> or a Pinterest board for one of our Kickstarter backers. Mm-hmm. Or a book prescription. Yeah. So that's really exciting. There's also a more ambitious tier. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited about this one. Um, can I tell them what yes. it is? Okay. Go for it. I mean, they can already look at it. It's but if already. They want more, if they want our yeah. voices. Okay. It's already on the internet. It's a $5,000 tier. And it's this idea we have, like, basically. We don't want to map out the whole season in advance. We want to leave it open and flexible. We want to be able to play with different threads and ideas with our producers. Um, But one thing I think we've thought of from the beginning is at some point we want to be able to turn the tables and interview people we admire, women we admire. Um, and ask them should we questions. Uh, you know, should we is this complicated thing where I think we sort of use it ironically. We're not trying to actually give advice. We're just trying to like sort things out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of interested in bringing other people into the conversation, finding out how they've made important decisions about their lives. Um, their everyday lives and then like big milestones Um, and also I kind of want to ask them for advice like really should we do this or that yeah completely I mean one of the most interesting things to me about talking with people I admire is um, learning about their systems because I think it's pretty hard to move 
easefully through the world without a really strong infrastructure behind you, whether that yeah. infrastructure is created by you or by someone else. And for most of the women I know, it's self-created. So even if they move through the world with ease, there's a lot of, um, if not rigor, at least intention behind how they design their lives. And, you know, I think that talking about the foibles of that um, and, you know, not just uh, being self-aware about laughing at the how rigid it can sound. Like, sometimes when I talk about my ideal life, it sounds unbelievably rigid, but I know that's hilarious, but I still, there's a kernel of, like, usefulness in the intention toward that um, system, and I, I really love hearing about other people's systems and how they make decisions in their lives. Mm-hmm. There's, there's this really, there's this question, how does she do it? Mm-hmm. And it's a very complicated question, you know. It's a question that in some cases maybe you shouldn't ask. Like like that question of like, how does she balance work and life? Mm-hmm. And like, and then nobody asks someone's partner that. Yeah. Um, but I really want to ask that question of people like within a safe space. And because when I have had the chance to ask that type of question of people I admire, I often find out like like she isn't doing it all or she asks for help or you know she learned a lot of things along the way that that I could learn from too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean <clears throat> that idea of it as a loaded question I think comes from the idea that there's a power dynamic in the question where what you want is to hear that everything can be perfect. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to hear that everything can be perfect. I no. just want to hear about um, novel strategies for dealing with imperfection. <laughs> <laughs> or, or for, um, you know, making imperfection your competitive advantage, right. <laughs> as they say. <laughs> so that, that actually is a good segue into my next question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is, um, should we speak up, Lisa? Should we speak up? It seems like I have a lot to say today. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you are speaking up, so <laughs> the question answers itself. The question answers itself. Yes, of course we should speak up. Um, one of the things that sparked this question for me was that recently I got to hear Madeline Albright speak. And it was a remarkable experience for me because um, she was so honest and funny and smart and she really shared how she does it, how she's done it over the course of her career. and. She talked about how it's 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 always been it's been hard for her to speak up, which to me I just couldn't imagine that. Yeah. Right. And she talked about how you know at at some moments she would go into this big important meeting with all of these leaders from around the world, and she would take her seat at the table as the only woman, and she would think to herself you know, I'm just going to listen today. I'm going to take things in, gauge the room, and get a sense of whether people like me. And then at some point, 
over the course of that meeting, she would be like, wait a second. If I don't speak up, if I don't find my voice for today, not only is everyone gonna miss out on my perspective, which is different and which matters, my whole country won't be spoken for. (laughs) So, you know, she had to muster that and overcome this really natural voice in her head, which I really identify with. I want to go into a room and listen and, and I want to hear about like what other people are thinking, you know, before I just jump right in. Um, but that idea that, that it's so important, not just for yourself, but for anyone you might be representing, like on purpose or by accident or the people that come after you, that, that you have to speak up. That really hit me so hard. Yeah, I mean, you have worked on this, right? Like, this isn't just a theoretical thing for you. What's been your experience of working on it? Well, it goes back pretty far. Like, you know, I've always been quiet. But in one of my first jobs I had, I really didn't speak up. I, I... was frustrated a lot by decisions that were made or how things were done and I never said so I just quietly simmered and then um, on my last day as I was leaving and going on to something else I just kind of let it all out and basically said what I had been thinking all along in kind of an angry way although like my angry is like other people's (laughs) slightly frustrated Mm -hmm. but still like I just kind of finally said what I've been thinking and for like five minutes that felt really good and then forever after I've been kicking myself because I knew right away that it was on me to say those things all along like I hadn't I hadn't spoken up. I hadn't even tried to do anything that might have been within my power or a little bit outside of it to change the things I was frustrated about. I just sat there and like, like waited for someone else to let me or give me permission. Mm -hmm. So I really made a pact with myself that I would do it the other way around. In my next jobs, I would find jobs where my voice my perspective was welcome and valued and I would make a point to speak up and you know I have a lot of ups and downs with feeling comfortable speaking up or not but that moment with Madeline Albright was like a really really good reminder yeah I mean I have had my own journey with this that's coming back to me uh, listening to you which goes all the way back to preparing to go to business school. So thinking back on college, I think I spoke up pretty regularly, but those are also pretty niche environments, you know, where Mm -hmm. um, the stakes felt pretty low in discussion section, for instance. Um, Business school, I knew that I would be surrounded by people who were far more uh, extroverted than I was, far more energized by conflict and also uh, far more experienced in 
speaking for a living because so many of them were consultants and they were used to giving high stakes presentations at the end of an engagement, for instance. And so I knew that would be the case. I also knew that at Harvard Business School, half of your grade uh, derives from your participation. Which is speaking up in class. Which is speaking up in class. Speaking up in, in your first year, always a section of 90. And so in the course of an 80 minute class, you need to find your moment and contribute approximately one out of every three classes or else your grade's really going to suffer. And not only will your grades suffer, but if you don't speak up, you're more likely to be cold called, which means you don't get to choose the moment the professor chooses for you. Um, and do you raise your hand? You raise your hand, but they also will cold call almost always at the beginning and sometimes in the middle. Okay. So I knew that this was coming and I felt uh, really afraid of it. Um, and I prepared for that in a few ways. One was just by uh, dreading it. <clears throat> That's a kind of preparation. Uh, <laughs> another way was by taking improv classes, which I had like hor- uh, just horrifyingly uh, resisted for uh, over a year at that point. But I took one improv workshop over several weeks and then took the second version of it because I actually liked it so much. Um, and then, you know, in school itself, I really, really didn't want to be cold called. I concluded that um, that being caught off guard was worse than being proactive. And so I worked to always be finding my moment. Um, but finding your moment at um, Harvard Business School, like the case method and the discussions that happen and like the rigor that goes around grading you on your discussion participation, uh, greatly favors adding value based on the flow of the conversation versus on a pre-prepared remark. Um, I guess that's just a prepared remark. And so, uh, and so that's what I did. I basically, after one semester where I did not do so well on participation, I developed a new strategy which was don't prepare that well. <laughs> don't prepare that well so I have nothing to fall back on except mm-hmm. my ingenuity in the moment and just listen really hard and try to knit people's uh, comments together and add a new perspective. And in doing this, you know, I felt very intimidated by the setting and it was difficult for me all the time, but I had this meta confidence that I had been admitted to business school for being different. And I knew that, or I had was able to trust that because I was admitted through a specific admissions program called two plus two, the stated goal, the stated goal of which is to get different voices into the classroom, um, different from the investment bankers and consultants that Harvard Business School is known for. And so because I was admitted through that program and because I was relatively close with the admissions director, I knew, uh, I, I really knew, I really felt like I knew for sure that I had been admitted for who I was and not as a mistake and also specifically for my ability to add a different perspective to the room. And so knowing that and feeling that level of trust in the factual causal link there made me trust that if I could find a way to find my moment, I was doing what I was supposed to be doing and that my perspective was welcome. Wow, wow. I, you know, I've, I've known that you went to business school. <laughs> I was with you along the way. I even sat in on one of your classes once where 
So I was in divinity school <laughs> at the same time. I love this. I love that you went to business school and I went to divinity school, like a mile apart. And then ultimately we ended up in the same place doing basically the same thing. <laughs> so that is fantastic. But my school let out a little bit early. You know, maybe that says something about <laughs> divinity school students. But I came over and, and sat in on your class. And it was fascinating to me and also terrifying. Like the way, even the way the classroom is set up kind of like a stadium and with 90 people in it. I mean, I was used to like 12 person seminars that were very warm and welcoming and a little slower and more ponderous and encouraging and supportive. And this was something else <laughs> entirely, wow. And now I have like even more respect for, for what it takes to make it in that environment. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard for me, and I, you know, only through repeated mandatory exposure did I get more comfortable with it. But the end result is that finding my moment is my uh, prerequisite for speaking up, like being able to sense when, um, when synthesis is needed, and not just synthesis, like not just combining other people's ideas, but being able to... Um, be able to connect the point you're making to where the conversation's been so far. And, you know, I mean, we could talk forever about this. Like, I have had to learn so many techniques for managing it in different environments and making sure that I'm contributing in the way I want to be contributing. But, like, you know, part of what is implied here in speaking up is speaking up in a group setting, like in a meeting um, specifically and possibly like a, a school or, or business meeting and that's actually different from um, just making sure that if you have something you need to say you say it to somebody to some to some recipient who might be able to do something about it that's like mm -hmm. speaking up as whistleblowing or speaking up as speaking truth versus speaking up as managing the um, managing the performance right Right, but, and I think there's another question embedded in this, which is, should we be different? Mm. And I mean, I feel like I have spent all of my teenage years, all of my 20s pretty much, trying to blend in. And um, more recently, I, I, in the past couple of years, I've taken some like communications workshops or um, and also worked with a, a coach and going into those things I thought what I was going to learn is how to fit in better how to talk more like everyone else or something and what I learned very quickly is that that's not the point if you're just going to say things that sound like everyone else why are you there? Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so the Feeling different is hard, but being different is so valuable. And I, I just went into these things feeling like, okay, I've done everything within my power to try and fit in, and now I need help to like polish off the rough edges. And it's like, the rough edges are the whole thing. You gotta have your, your rough edges, or else like, who even are you? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it's this real uh, inversion where at some point being different and standing out and saying things in a different way from everybody else uh, is power. And I still don't totally understand this transition point, but it's like once you've earned a certain amount of respect through being in a hospitable environment, which is like point one, uh, right, prerequisite right. one. So it has to be a hospitable environment. You earn respect by delivering consistently. At some point, sort of uh, lashing out in like the most generic sense of the word in terms of like doing something radically different in a moment when you've built a reputation for being consistent um, is very powerful. And um, the fact that you took that space can cause people to just believe you earned that space. You know, it's a self-fulfilling mm. prophecy. And I think that managing that self-fulfilling prophecy by bringing it about is the thing that I am still working to do and uh, would love to understand better so that I could uh, so that I could help other people with it. Because it's insofar as I've been able to experience it, it's been a radical transformation for my experience of the workplace. Right, right. Like if you're in an environment where you can generally trust that you're not going to get fired for speaking your mind in a thoughtful way, um, uh, it it is it really is so powerful but but so hard to do and i would say it's complicated because i really do think that in the early earliest years of my career blending in really helped me succeed um and so what is that inflection point where um or or is that even just a a framework i have in my head that's not valid like now I feel it's really true that my value is in seeing things differently and saying so, but um, I don't know about how it would have been if I had mustered that right off the bat. I just don't know. I don't either, and it's really hard to uh, backtrack because what I don't want to do is tell anybody you have to go along to get along until you sniff that there's a magical inflection point. Right. Like it, it's possible that I wasted extra years, yeah. you know, and I don't want to believe that I did it the exact right way, and therefore, like I, my experience defines the minimum bound of when you can start, yeah, growing, you know, or right. like taking up more space. Um, my friend Kate calls it uh, something like, you know, becoming becoming a monster, like, in a good way. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I I, I don't want to believe that I did it the best possible way on the exact right timeline, but I do think that um, there's something uh, putting in a good faith effort and trying to deliver like deliver within the rules that exist I don't know I don't know what I'm even trying to say yeah I mean I also I don't want to say like um behave yourself right. <laughs> or something uh but so I think what I can say for certain <clears throat> is that a very big dose of open-mindedness and flexibility is so helpful at the from the first day of your first job through to like the last day when you retire. Mm -hmm. um, but 
Yeah, in terms of, of saying what you really think, I think there's an art to that, to doing it in a way that's effective, and it depends on the environment, it depends on your audience that you're talking to. And so, obviously, this question is really complicated, and I just want to be honest about how it's been for me. And I don't want to, this is one of those where we really aren't giving yeah. advice yeah. at all, but I would like to share more, because people wonder, they ask, like, well, how did you get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. And I know, I know that, I'm sure it happens for you too, where people want to understand your, your path. Yeah, I mean, thinking about it and trying to figure out the top takeaways, <laughs> <laughs> top takeaways from at least this short version of this conversation, which I hope we have again. Yeah. Um, one of them is that I spent some critical years of my early career back in school in a setting that was designed to make sure that the first two prerequisites were true, that it was a hospitable environment for Mm -hmm. um, being bold. And uh, I forget what the second version, I like had something to say or something like that, you know? um, So business school was basically a pretend environment that gave me lots and lots of exposure to what would it be like if I could trust that the baseline was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really good, and I came out of that with a lot better, more nuanced um, ability to sense when that would be true, when I could take those risks, um, and also just a lot more experience with what to do once once it's true, you know, mm-hmm. out of this sort of pretend setting. So that was really, and the, the risk, the interpersonal risk was still real, but the career risk wasn't there because it was a setting designed for... Um, risk support um so that's true and then the other most powerful turning point for me was when I stopped undermining what I'd immediately what I what I just said so Mm -hmm. I had a tendency to say something and then immediately want to soften it and based on some coaching and some books I'd read I decided to just start saying something and then forcing myself to let it hang there Mm -hmm. and basically just stop talking Oh my gosh, Diana, I had sort of the opposite thing where I would preface everything I said with, this is probably a bad idea, or um, this is why this probably won't work, but, and then I would just say my thing. And someone gave me this very kind feedback, like, can, can you just cut off that preface, please? Because we just want to know what you have to say, mm-hmm. and we will let you know if we have questions about it. Exactly, and then believing that uh, getting a reaction is a good thing. Actually, mm-hmm. preempting people's uh, right to react is um, preventing them from saying what they have to say. Right, right. Yeah, so my lesson from that little bit of feedback was no caveats. Mm-hmm. You can come up with those later if you need them. You can have them in your back pocket. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that is something that, um, you know, it would have gone better or worse. Uh, the reaction to it would be better or worse depending on the reputation I'd built and the amount of experience I brought to the table. But it would never be uh, the wrong choice, like no matter where I'd been in my career. I think that just putting it out there and letting it sit 
um, is a universally uh, strong move if you can bear to make it. Mm-hmm. And you know what, Diana? That's what we're doing with our podcast. Yeah. Putting it out there and letting it sit. <laughs> Sometimes it's really nerve-wracking. Um, so, okay, I would love to talk about this like forever, even more between us and with other people. So that's why our listeners should support our <laughs> Kickstarter so we can keep going. That's right. Should we keep going? Yes. yes. Um, there's one last very brief question. It's very pressing for me. I have to sort it out today. I need to get a new phone. So the question is, should I get a gold iPhone or a rose gold iPhone? <laughs> Diana, what are your thoughts? Tell me okay. everything. All right, I have some questions first. Okay. Um, have you eliminated silver and space gray? Yes. Tell me why. I don't care about them. (laughs) I want something beautiful and interesting. I want something that will catch my eye. I want something that feels fancy. This Mm -hmm. is an expensive device. Yeah, it's really expensive. It better look good. Um, So what is the best thing that would happen if you bought a rose gold iPhone? (laughs) (laughs) The best thing that would happen is one of these women I admire like Madeline Albright for Mm -hmm. example I get to meet Madeline Albright I compliment her on her interesting pin she's all about pins and she compliments me on my pink phone (laughs) that would be the dream okay if you let's assume that we live in a world where nobody gives any compliments okay um what is then the best thing that would happen by getting a rose gold iPhone that would happen I just so my relationship with my phone is complicated. The notifications, we've talked about this before, but like at the moment, they're driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't wanna be on my phone all the time. I wanna be living my life. But I feel kind of neutral about the device itself right now, like whatever. But I would like to have a special relationship with it like I had with my 12-inch power book in college. Mm. I loved that computer. I had an emotional connection to it. It went with me everywhere. It traveled the world with me. I dropped it off the back of a truck and the corner got crushed and it still worked perfectly. And it was just the right size. Everything was perfect. I loved it. So I want that to happen with my phone. Okay, that sounds great. And is that more likely to happen with a rose gold or a gold iPhone? I would say probably rose gold. Okay, yeah. great. What's the worst thing that would happen if you got a rose gold iPhone? Um, uh, someone looks down on me. And they don't even say it. They just secretly think less of me because I have a pink phone. All right. Um, okay, what's the worst thing that'll happen if you don't get a rose gold iPhone? I will regret not getting a rose gold iPhone. Also, who is that person? Yeah. That jerk who's looking down on me because I have a pink phone. Yeah, that's I don't lame. care about them. Yeah. They need to open their mind. Yeah, that's right. I mean, who really is making the bad decisions in their life? <laughs> a person who doesn't have a pink phone. That's right. I mean, if 
kind of sounds to me like you've made your decision. Yeah. Should should I get a rose gold iPhone? I would say the answer is yes. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for helping me sort it out. I just had to confirm. You're very welcome, Lisa. I'm excited to see it. Um, I recently went all gold on my personal uh, electronics, and I've been extremely happy with it. I also have kind of a pastel mint green case that I get happiness from every single day. So re-embracing pastels has really been the story of Mm -hmm. 2016 for me. Mm -hmm. I love the way you described how with your new computer being gold, seeing the edges of the gold edges of the screen reminds you of something. Oh yeah, I'm in personal mode. So all my work electronics are silver, all my personal electronics are gold. Um, and I really like being able to feel in the periphery of my vision or just when I pick up each device, you know, this is about my personal relationship with technology, not the relationship mediated by my job. Mm -hmm. Um, you have a system for everything. (laughs) I love it. Well, talk to me the next time they introduce a new line of colors. (laughs) We'll We'll see what the system is then. Um, okay. I am excited for you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon, I guess. Talk soon.